Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. What does EPAM Continuum's David Rose have in common with the movie Field of Dreams? While both are obviously engaging and entertaining, hear me out. I think I'm onto something deeper. In Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner builds a ballpark for ghosts in his cornfield after hearing, If you build it, they will come. And it works. While obviously fiction, I think there's something comforting about the idea that when people sit down and think deliberately about what kind of future they desire, they can have an influence on the outcome. And that's especially comforting to me when it comes to imagining our future with augmented reality, or AR. When screens and sensors are everywhere and they know what we're looking at and what we're feeling, there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong and inundate us with distractions. But optimism comes in the form of people like David. He believes we have the power to imagine and design a desirable future state where AR functions as companions and coaches that help us understand and connect better with each other. David is the resident futurist at EPAM Continuum, where he focuses on ways to take new cutting-edge technologies and make them feel so natural as to disappear into our daily lives. He's written a book on the subject called Enchanted Objects, Design, Human Desire, and the Internet of Things, elaborating on how technology impacts our lives. Most recently, he was VP of Vision Technology at Warby Parker, where he reinvented vision tests to make them more accessible and convenient for the billions of people who need corrective lenses. So... What does David Rose think about the future of augmented reality? Well, he chatted about this recently with EPAM Continuum's Toby Bottorf, head of client engagement. Let's hear what they had to say about how our relationship with technology is like the one we have with our spouse, the differences between blind prototyping versus careful interventions, and why there are more whistleblowers than optimists. Here we go. We are talking today with David Rose, one of our newest colleagues at EPAM Continuum, a guy who spends a lot of time thinking about the future, uh, but he's got a pretty interesting past. So, David, you're you're new to EPAM Continuum. Uh, you've come to us from Warby Parker, the MIT Media Lab. Tell us a little bit about what you just finished doing. Well, at Warby Parker, um, as you know, the company is known for their home try-on uh, service. So if, you, if you're inspired to buy a pair of affordable glasses, they will ship five to your home you can, without, without prescription lenses in them. Uh, you can try them on for your friends and family and decide that you fall in love with lens number two or frame, frame number two. And from there, you can uh, finish the order online without ever having to go into a store. And that presented a big problem for the company because... Um, many people, once they've made a frame choice, are asked, so what's your prescription? Mm-hmm. And it's not like we keep our prescriptions in the bottom file drawer. I mean, does anybody keep file drawers anymore? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, not only was it hard to lay your hands on a prescription, because it was the, the nearby optometrist who was not eager to give Warby Parker call center um, uh, <laughs> uh, operators that, that prescription because they would lose the sale and they knew it. Um, but also, uh, in, there's a regulation in this country that in many states you have to get a new script, despite the fact that your eyes don't actually change very yeah. quickly every couple of years, yeah, every, two, every two years. Right. Um, my prescription, like a, like a prescription for a drug, expired right, after right. two years. Well, by design. Uh-huh. There's a lobby for that. Okay. Um, so we tried to solve, we tried to solve that problem by building uh, a new business that needed to be built 
which is to uh, verify and uh, correct your prescription from the comfort of your own home. And if you think about an eye test, it's not that complicated. Like you have, there has to be a stimulus, also called an optotype, uh, which are those tumbling E's or Landolt C's, or sometimes you, there are even pictograms that are designed for kids that are preliterate. Um, you have to be a certain distance away from the no, a known stimulus, an optotype, um, and you have to test people and to the point of failure. So that yep. so that they can't see whatever line that they're you know the twenty twenty fifteen line the twenty ten line, um, and so we built a system that used uh, a computer or your laptop, for example, to put up the optotypes, your phone to detect very precisely how far away you were from said eye chart, and um, and then your phone to indicate what you see. So you swipe with the phone as if you're it's a remote control. Um, in the direction of the opening of a of a of a land old sea, which can be one of eight different orientations, and then with that information, we and and we ask you a set of questions about the, the history of eye disease in your family and other other conditions. Uh, we can send that data to um, uh, ophthalmologist in your state by law, and then they can issue a new prescription. Um, and so it was my job to put together a team to prototype this, to iterate on the user experience, um, and ultimately to roll it out in 20 states, which are which make up about 80% of their customers. Um, and it's perceived as a real success because, you know, it removes a really important point of friction in that user journey. Well, you're wearing glasses. I wear glasses. I've, I've thought about glasses a lot. And certainly the eye test is one of two um, pain points for me. The other is... Um, if I take off my glasses, I can't see very well. So mm. to try on mm. a new pair <laughs> is kind of like, I don't know what I look like in these. Because yeah, I can right. stand in front of a mirror, but I can't see clearly. Um, there, there may be some remedies for that with it, with interesting technology too, right? Well, you know, when I was at Warby, the um, iPhone ten came out, which has a front-facing camera um, which can unlock your phone. So that technology, which I think Apple acquired, um, turned out to be perfect for uh, this second use case, which is show me glasses on my face in a really convincing way. We call it virtual try-on mm-hmm. um, that will inspire so much confidence uh, in what I will look like w- but with these new glasses that I will be compelled to buy them. And luckily, because Apple uh, in that system has a uh, infrared projector and an infrared camera that's dedicated just to reading the topology of your face as being unique to you, um, we could use that that point cloud, that 40,000-point point cloud, in order to understand your pupillary distance, your nose bridge height, the width of your face, and then really convincingly put a 3D model with textures and shading and transparency of glasses on your face. And that's been a huge boon to the business because um, a lot of that population as you would, as you might guess, does have iPhone 10 mm-hmm. <laughs> or now iPhone 11s. And, um, and they're trying on glasses rapidly and, and buying through that experience. So I'm, you know, that whole idea of a virtual try on, I think is one of the best use cases for augmented reality. Um, there are many, many use cases, like some people say, maybe 15 or 18, you know, kind of things you could use this, mixing virtual with real um 
But I think, you know, for many businesses where the rubber hits the road is the um, uh, being able to be in the e-com funnel and let me see what those glasses look like on my face. Let me see what the shoes look like on my feet. Let me see what the haircut looks like on my on my head. Let me see yeah. what the makeup looks like or or um, even something like jewelry. I remember my my friend works at um, Cartier in New York, and they have all these shop window displays on Fifth Avenue that millions of people walk by after 5 p.m. when Cartier for safety reasons, like takes all the jewelry out of the window. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we spoke about like, well, that would be a great opportunity for virtual try on. You're walking by the window, the window sees your face, it reflects your face. And now with like a new amazing, um, Louis the 15th gold, uh, sapphire brooch or I just made that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for, for folks that haven't applied social media filters to their pictures, they might not know what we're talking about. So augmented reality is a couple of big words. What are we talking about? But And also, what aren't we talking about? Um, with augmented reality, I, the new term is actually spatial computing. And I kind of like spatial computing more. But I do too. It's taking the base plane of the real world and superimposing a digital layer on top of that base plane. So if the base plane is what is revealed to you in your front-facing selfie camera, you know, it's putting other ornaments or decorations or costumes or um, vomiting rainbows or whatever, you know, on on your, the plane of your face and um, allowing you to see that, like, in oftentimes in real time. Um, if you take the other camera on the phone, it's pointing that camera at the world and being able to recognize where you are, for example, Google Nav um, uh, now has an application where if you walk out of the subway in New York and you're lost, like most of us most of us are in that moment, um, rather than looking down at a plan view map, now a fox pops up and it's a red fox kind of from the Pokemon mm-hmm. um, you know, vocabulary um, and you just follow the fox. So that is kind of a use of having the front-facing camera recognize where you are in Manhattan based on not putting QR codes on any buildings, but just recognizing the skyline because all of those buildings are now trained on so they Mm -hmm. can determine that you're at like 42nd and 8th. And then they superimpose on the view through the camera the red fox, which is now walking down off to the right so now you follow that fox sounds both charming and like easier to follow (laughs) well i think a lot of people are debating kind of what is the killer app for this new mixed reality um world you know is it navigation the following the fox example or um i mean i think early signs of what ar have um you know, will become are now found in lots of high-end cars, right? Like, so if you look yeah. at, you, you throw the car into reverse, not only do you see through the rear-facing camera of the car what you're about, like what you shouldn't hit or or what you might, might hit, um, but also there's a superimposition of um, if you turn the wheel to the left, here's an arc of how the car will move out of the parking spot, for example. Yep. Um, or in your front-facing heads up display you can see turn like a path that's superimposed on the road in front of you in order to figure out where to turn next so 
you know, this, this generalized will become what is baked into glasses. Yeah, glasses. So um, Google Glass, I remember trying those on when they were brand new, and I felt, man, this is like a segue for your face. Um, not something I wanted. Um, you're more bullish on the... Well, I think, I mean, there's a very bright line in my and between glasses that show kind of disembodied information that is floating in front of your head. Um, and when you turn your head, it turns with your head. So that was Google Glass. with, um, And the new technology that is... Um, uh, part of HoloLens, it's part of Magic Leap, and it's part of 50 other glasses companies that are all, you know, coming out soon to, you know, to uh, uh, e-commerce sites near you, um, which is a technology called spatialized location and mapping, which uh, otherwise known as SLAM. And this SLAM technology um, uses front-facing cameras that are embedded in the frames of glasses in order to image the world in front of you, um, and which then gives you the ability to actually superimpose information on the physical world in places where it's appropriate to put information in the physical world. So if there's an open space on a wall or an yeah. open space on a table, you might superimpose information in those places. And when you turn your head, the information stays right there. So that sounds really promising to me um, in terms of lightning the cognitive load. Because uh, if the information has object permanence, um, I can go back to it. Um, and, and the other thing that's lightened in your load is if the information is not connected to the world, it has to have some other information architecture to be accessed and, and refound. And then you got to learn that, you know, cyber information architecture as opposed mm. to just being in the world and that's in the same right. place consistently. Yeah, that's right. So I I founded a company um, 19 years ago now called Ambient Devices, where the big idea was, could you take this insight that um, cognitive psychologists have had for a long time, which is called pre-attentive processing? This is the ability for your brain to, to process things in peripheral vision, in parallel, in less than a quarter of a second without any cognitive load. You know, could we design more information that can exist in your visual periphery that you love having around? Because just like you like having a window around because without mm -hmm. even glancing, you can tell it's raining outside or it's getting dark or, you know, like lots of other information that, that our reptilian brains can perceive in the periphery. And so we were making dedicated objects that to render information as light or as pattern or as an angle or other kind of pre-attentive phenomena. Um, but now with AR, you can imagine kind of a painted pixels or a digital dashboard that tells you about the things that you most care about uh, in, your in your periphery, right? So like everyone, everyone has a set of things that they care about. I mean, for some of for some of us, these things are kind of jumping onto wearables, right? Like all of the things that are on your watch. Mm -hmm. Are you late for your next meeting? Is there an important uh, notification from someone that you care about? Uh, are your servers down? Uh, you know, yeah. how how's the mood of a of a loved one? You know, all of these kind of status indicators. But now they don't have to be on your phone. Now they can be kind of spread thinly in the world around you. And that will happen through augmented reality. Yeah. So they're a little bit less needy of attention. 
Well, that's that's where design comes in, because I think a lot of what has been prototyped um, or speculated about the coming AR future is a world of immense clutter, you know, yeah. where, where you can imagine kind of, uh, you know, superimposition of of reputation systems or navigation or advertising that's just going to be totally polluting our visual field. But I, that's kind of this dystopian view of it. I think with design and with understanding people's needs and understanding people's psychological states and really deeply understanding people, we can start to provide services that can exist in your visual field um, that are things that you want. Yeah. I can. I think I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to um, talk. If we're talking about what the killer app for uh, spatial computing or augmented reality might be, I want to also make sure we spend a minute thinking about um, our current understanding of the worst case scenario, because a lot of new technology has unintended uh, consequences. Uh, I think there's general consensus that um, the dystopian view of this is that it's um, just billboards everywhere um, that, that again, your attention has been monetized. Yeah. I think that that is the popular um, fear. Um, it is that uh, this coming world of kind of augmented, augmented vision is, is going to be mostly undesirable um, and most, and, you know, and, and that the big players that are monetizing attention today um, through advertising will have a brand new rich field to um to clutter with with promotions of all sorts and um and they'll be able to do it in a much more insidious way because not only will they know where you are but they will also know um what catches your eye and what you're actually like what the gaze vector specifically is looking at so if if you as you walk by a sign or a store display and and you dwell for 400 milliseconds on something like, mm-hmm. well, then that's going to be retargeted at you as you, <laughs> as going to, yeah, that, that's going to follow right. you home. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We've been working here on a set of, um, hazards. Uh, I'm calling this whole field of, um, kind of the, the intersection between computer vision and wearables, uh, as super sight. Cause I think like that is the promise. Like that is the fantasy. That's, yeah. that is the superpower is, you know, x-ray vision and, um, you know, being able to see in time lapse, being able to see in slow mo, being able to see yeah. through things, well, being able to see the kind of the meta cloud of information that now surrounds everything. The the glasses that are sitting on my face were you know pretty close to invented seven hundred years ago. There haven't been a whole lot of upgrades. I mean, I do have uh, they're they're super hip. They're, they're called progressives, which is a much nicer word than bifocals, <laughs> uh, but. There hasn't been a lot of technological advancement in something that I, you know, first thing I put on in the morning is my glasses. Hmm. And those convex lenses were hip even then, yeah. actually. <laughs> like, glasses have been fashionable since the invention of glasses. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I I think part of my job at Warby Parker was to think about what new sensors and display technologies might be in, might be embedded in the this base of, you know, that the temples and the um, the frame, literally the frames of glasses. Yeah. Um, and some of the things we were looking at, which I think are still intriguing use cases for, for many types of companies, um, 
one is to just make them airpods you know mm-hmm. like this kind of open air audio open ear audio is something that bose has recently um commercialized in their bose ar frames yep. so like that's it's just headphones it's just another form factor for headphones um uh and a microphone and i think those get more and more interesting as as you find specific um kind of service design scenarios that take advantage of the open airness of the fact that um you know you could be biking as well as listening and still hear the traffic yeah. you could be doing an outdoor um yoga session and these frames because they have an accelerometer and a compass in them will know that you're doing downward dog and not just faking it like they will if they're doing a coaching app uh like aptive they will know what your what your pace is um they recently just did uh, uh enabled a new gesture which i think is actually brilliant because it's um a familiar gesture where if you look skyward they tell you what the AccuWeather forecast is. Mm-hmm. Isn't that nice, right? So it's not like that's not a new novel gesture that you have to learn. That's just taking, that's just learning from how people um, move their head around and trying, you know, and, and doing something that's kind of sympathetic to mm-hmm. an existing gesture. It means for me that when I'm trying to remember something, I'm going to be told the weather. Because <laughs> that's my habit. Like, well, maybe for you, they need to be personalized to actually yeah. tell you the thing you're trying to remember. So <laughs> we, we went off on a nice, interesting tangent. I want, to, I want to loop back to what you were describing as a part of Supersight and, uh, and these hazards. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've described um, six kind of buckets or, or clusters of concern. Um, for each of them, I'm I, my. It's my intent to not just raise them as issues or to be kind of catastrophizing about what the problem is, but also to kind of propose a remedy, like to yeah. propose a way out, either a design way out or a legislation way out um, of the of the woods. So um, I think the the first one is social social insulation. In the same way that we have bubble filters today, and different people are experiencing different realities in terms of the news i think that's going to be one of the most profound effects is you could be walking hand in hand with someone through the city and he could be um interested in another set of things perhaps superheroes jumping off of bit you know jumping around like spider-man's um weaving around buildings mm-hmm. i could be interested in architectural history i could be getting my glasses for free subsidized by ads we would be experiencing a totally different stroll and and what does that do to the, to the you know social interaction between two people yeah. so i think there need to be new sinking gestures that allow people to to see the same thing and that that's kind of another opportunity for design. The same thing was true of cell phones uh, when people started talking to themselves in public. Mm. Um, the first impression was like, uh-oh, uh, keep a wide berth. Yeah. But now it's become a little bit more normal. Um, I do think that, the, that there's, there's going to be a problem if um, you can't tell what somebody else is seeing. Are they, are they looking at you or looking through you at something else? Yeah, uh, Thad Starner, who, who was a proponent of wearables when I was at the Media Lab in the 90s, um, it was very hard to talk to him because he was kind of always staring kind of past you and doing something else and you just using a cording keyboard in his pockets. So he'd like something was always going on that was like, <laughs> in addition to talking to you, like 
he's also coding, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it might be just, you know, I have a pair of the North glasses, um, which, uh, have a little Pico projector in the temp in the temple of one of the eyes. And they just launched this week, uh, Twitter feed, which much, <laughs> much to my chagrin. Oh, no. So in addition to, to getting kind of a heads up display for your, for your talk, so you can see what to say for each slide or notifications or when your next when your uber is coming or what spotify song is playing or notifications now you can see your twitter stream like right there in your glasses so that's going to be good for human interaction um (laughs) let's let's talk about another um uh another issue i i i think in the same way that uh, gps and calculators a long time ago gave us these kind of cognitive crutches um, I think that's going to be another rep, uh, thing to kind of deal with in terms of uh, having everything in front of you labeled. So even after having been at uh, EPAM Continuum for about four weeks, um, I still am strug- I still struggle with like who's who, what are their roles, what projects are they working on, who's what, what superpowers do they have, uh, yeah. you know, who's an expert at what, who who, ha- who aspires to what, like remembering that times 130 people or so is you know i'm going to be at that for months can i Um, tell you what my killer app for augmented reality is sure name tags yeah yeah just (laughs) well name name tag on people for me so but do you worry that if everyone has a name tag that's superimposed either on you know where you put a name tag or maybe larger on you know on top uh floating over their head um Will it make you dependent upon that technology? So if, if GPS is a precedent, then yes. You know, most people's sense of direction has really atrophied. Um, personally, I would imagine it would be a learning tool and that it would be the kind of thing that I would like to uh, modulate a little bit or it's on a gradual um, fade that I can say, well, we bring it back. But Yeah, I think that's the way out of these kind of cognitive crutches is in the same way that... Um, you know, pilots are because of autopilot are going to, we bemoan the fact that they probably are becoming worse and worse, the less that they have their hands on the yoke of the plane. Um, maybe instead of just hanging out and drinking coffee, they, they should, um, instead like use the context of the cockpit to, uh, to do simulations yeah. as they fly. Yeah. There's a, there's a great book, the glass cage that talks about the perils of automation and, Pilots are the, the best example because what we're we're dividing up the labor where we're taking away the repetitive stuff that keeps your skills sharp and asking you to only intervene very rarely and in an emergency. It's like the worst possible combination. Do you remember what other professions he he spoke about? I think one was architecture, and he 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 said, you know, the 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 lack of having the hand sketching is really is is making is homogenizing the buildings that we design in AutoCAD. Yeah. Well, that that's super resonant cuz uh here at EPAM Continuum, I think everybody regardless of whether sketching is their medium or something else, we think and sharpen our thinking by sketching. Right. You can sketch in an Excel spreadsheet, you can sketch in 3D foam, but make a thing, figure out what you're really talking about by making that seems yeah. like a well that's that's kind of a perfect segue to what i'm doing here yeah which is the making the making things um i mean i i i know that we have a uh, an amazing tradition of deep customer research um and kind of a 
being reserved up and um, kind of appropriately slow at 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 inventing um, solutions before we understand context and people deeply. Yeah. Um, I think that the culture of the media lab is, is, is different and maybe interestingly different. Um, and to me, the, um, kind of the tradition there is more about quickly prototyping kind of almost blindly quickly prototyping, Mm -hmm. um, as a way of learning and understanding, um, uh, kind of what a new material might be. Yeah. You know, if you if you liken, you know, electronics or sensing or augmented reality to a new material, um, there's this, you know, jump right in, try it like you will you will be wrong in lots of ways about what the abilities are of this of this new material. And if you've ever thrown a pot, have you ever thrown a pot on a on a on a wheel? I uh, I taught ceramics at summer camp one year when I was in college, having never thrown a pot before that. So mm. that was an interesting week before the kids showed up. Right. So the materiality of clay is such that, you know, it it behaves very differently than what you might imagine. Like you can't just do a sketch and then produce that thing because um, you don't have the ability to to pull up uh, yeah. the edge of a pot. Uh, in the way that you would imagine. So it's like getting in there, experiencing the material, experiencing the plasticity of it and the limitations of it. You know, I, th- I think we can apply that same metaphor to um, this material of AI. You know, yeah. what will it be good at? What, how will it fail interestingly? And where will it be brittle? Um, and I firmly believe that kind of the best way to understand that is to have an idea for something, start building it, start failing, and, and then you yeah. discover I think this kind of notion of prototyping a concept quickly is maybe best true for new meat for new materials yeah. where you really don't have a sense of the capabilities and the limitations. Um, and, you know, once you become an expert, then you know how to apply those materials to specific client situations. Um, and you, and, and you can, you, you become a master, um, uh, kind of craftsperson in that respect. I, I think there's an ideal middle ground. I think our designers and strategists are super careful not to predetermine a technology or a solution, which I think is right. But maybe we sometimes uh, over-index on that. And I, I can totally see what you're describing. See, um, interestingly, we talk about things uh, even when we're not talking about vision. Hmm. Um, I see what you're talking about in terms of... Um, the difference between having a technology as um, a solution in search of a problem and just like trying to solve the wrong thing with it again and again and again, which is a, a stupid way of failing fast, um, and investigating it a little bit more open and curious um, so you can understand what is its essential quality? What is it good at? What does it want to be? Mm. Um, and you're still going to go back to people and understand their needs, um, but with a greater fluency about, you know, potential solutions right what is buildable yeah yeah just in terms of the 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 categories of the you know the benefits of what of of what augmented reality might be able to do for us um i've been trying to kind of catalog uh some of these uh you know some of these wishes that people have and some of the the types of benefits that it might deliver um 
And uh, I think one of the, you know, in addition to the labeling of the world, either big name tags or, or, or plants and animals or whatever that you need architecture um, labeled, um, I think this, the ability for this technology to kind of look back at us and help us understand our own, how we perform and what our state is, um, to me is fascinating because I think we're now used to this idea of personal digital assistance. We're used to those things, answering Wikipedia things, gathering shopping lists, playing music for us, you know, the kind of proliferation of where these digital assistants will be is kind of answered, right? And, you know, Amazon just launched rings and what glasses and other things that will have this technology embedded. But if we can actually use this technology to look at ourselves and, and kind of be the perfect coaches that help us play sports later in life, um, with more confidence and less injury, um, uh, that can kind of notice how we react in different situations, um, that can stimulate us when we're about to fall asleep when driving, that can soothe us when we're stressful, that can introduce us when we're lost, that can seek help before we make mistakes. Like that's really, I think that's really powerful to kind of think about how these things will kind of be our companions, desirable companions, probably shut offable companions. Mm -hmm. But as we go through all these tasks um, throughout our day. I like that you call them companions because there's a certain amount of um, life, and relational stuff going on there, um, and and this conversation has been really cool for me to get to get a sense of how you n- think about the future. We've talked about you know dystopian scenarios and the list you just gave of um, I thought really optimistic scenarios. Uh, I'm curious. I think maybe in closing, uh, how do, how do you balance um, optimism about the future and where does that come from with some guardedness around unintended consequences and potential, you know, negative use cases, dark patterns. Yeah, I guess my, my philosophy is that most new technologies can be used in positive or negative, negative ways. Um, you know, most of the things that we love about our spouse are also the things that drive us crazy. You know, like there's, there are always this kind of two Janus sides of, of any new tool. Um, I think, I don't know, the way that I want to be in the world is to optimize for and look for and design and build the things that are, you know, that help us understand each other more deeply, that connect to each other more deeply, um, that help us understand more about the environment, that, you know, that, um, you know, that function in the world in a, in a way that's um, desirable. Um, I think at the same time, we have to we we do need to paint the provocative dark scenarios that um, will help us do things like privacy by design architectures as we build these things. Um, um, but I, I tend to think that there are more journalists, whistleblowers and um, um, kind of people who are willing to um, be alarmist uh, in the world rather than people who are trying to um, kind of create the desirable uh, future states. And so I'd like to focus on the positive valence stuff. Cool. Well, given that attitude and for lots of other reasons, we're super glad you're here. Uh, welcome to PEMP Continuum. Thank you. It's been great. The people are fantastic and pro- projects are very, very, very um, satisfying. Great.
Here's to more. Thanks, David. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to David Rose and Toby Bator for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, whose future is so bright he has to wear shades. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. We'll be right back.